Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the draft um, of the revised principles for the SAA's, our Society of American Archaeology's Principles of Archaeological Ethics. This is the third stage of the, the group that's kind of been investigating, updating this. Um, the last time these were updated was, I think, 1996. Um, and filling out the panel today is Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez. Ladies, so happy to be chatting with you. Happy to be chatting with you, too. Yep, excited to be chatting about this really important topic. Apologies for the slide. Sound and Kirsten, you're, you're part of a lot of um, this, too, in terms of reviewing, right? Um, so for this one, I was briefly involved um, earlier, but I have not been involved in this one specifically in the review uh, business, but I have been tangentially involved um, through the RPA and um, something that I mentioned uh, before getting started is the RPA and the Register the for SAA. Professional Archaeologists. Yes, RPA for the Register for Professional Archaeologists. Um, I'm helping put together the the new handbook, but that's being created because of the updates to standards and principles uh, for the RPA, and some of it is being articulated with the SAA as far as making sure that they each each organization has sort of their own purpose within the field and there isn't too much overlap, you know, or, you know, each organization isn't trying to do too much. So um, some of the things is they, they just act very differently. SAA is a, a networking and um, uh, basically a, a, a work sharing uh, networking associations. So everyone shares the work that they've done. They get to know each other. Uh, you know, the mixing and melding of ideas and being able to to really showcase one's own work as well as uh, be able to, you know, meet new people in the field, gain new ideas, and you know, look for work kind of stuff. Um, it's a great place for new students to see what the field is really like. And their big uh, conferences end up being like highlight social events for a lot of archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Whereas the RPA is more of a um, governing or register. So archaeologists practice uh, archaeology and there is the RPA, which you can register with, which means that you uh, adhere to specific principles and meet certain qualifications. Um, People prefer to hire people that are RPA members, but you don't have to be to practice. It's not like being a, a nurse and being licensed or a doctor or hell even a real estate agent needs <laughs> licensure right. um and so because uh those different bodies act differently they're and we'll get into some of the challenges with the sa's code of ethics um and how how it's implemented but it's something that 
because it's really the largest body um, for our field, they are in the spotlight for having a code of ethics that really represents who we are and what we try to aspire to. Yeah. So before we kick off into like what exactly the, the changes are and what's going on, um, I think there's, there's a question of why now I, I have, um, looked it up the adoption of the like current set of ethics uh, were adopted in 1996. I did remember that correctly. Um, but they first started being talked about in 1991. So it's like about a five year period um, from, Hey, we should do this to here's a real, you know, fully realized uh, code of ethics. The, the first task force, which I mentioned is that this is kind of the third task force to look at this, but the first task force um, prepared some recommendations in 2018. Um, a second task force was then created to solicit opinions from different people. Um, and now we have this, this third group who has put out this um, updated ethics or draft of the ethics. Um, and the reason that we are recording this now and the reason that it was released now is because the SAA will be having their annual conference in Portland at the end of March. Um, we are hoping to get this out before that conference. Um, and at the conference, there will be an opportunity for members of the SAA uh, and attendees to provide feedback on these um, this draft of the principles. And there will also be an opportunity um, for people who can't attend the meeting to um, have some input at a to-be-determined online event sometime in April. That's awesome that there are so many opportunities for people to comment on it because it seems like a lot of stuff like with big organizations, why not they just make the, the new suggestions and just call it a day. So I think it's great that they're trying to involve membership and folks as much as possible, especially since, um, and I'm sure we'll be getting to this, the the reasoning, the, the, the real big push for why we need to have the new code and new new principles. I, I think that there, yeah, we need to talk about why why this, this new code was um, pushed for, but... I will say and leave it at this for now, but the opportunity for online um, feedback hasn't been um, announced yet, which doesn't really give people a lot of um, ability to schedule around it if it's, true. you know, because it is something true. super important. And the um, meeting that they will be hosting in Portland um, that people are welcome to come to is uh, Friday morning at 8 a.m. Oh, geez. So they schedule and, a time. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. don't tend to show up at a lot of the 8 a.m. meetings. So mm, is it just lip service? And that's what I'm going to say for that. That's for fair. Now. I mean, there's there are a variety of reasons I have not renewed my membership, but... Yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, we, we, we've said that, but yeah. 
Okay. I do have to say, as far as the, the meetings, they have meetings at specific times so that people don't, it doesn't overlap with the symposia. That's fair. Uh, okay. That's understandable. That's but... As an interest group chair for a number of years, always ran into this frustrating, like there were, there's like a, a ridiculous number of interest groups. Let's start with oh, that. Yeah. There are very few time slots that these avail these meetings for the interest groups can occur during the conference. And if you want people to attend, it's hopefully not during the time when your members are wanting to go to other interest group meetings. Mm-hmm. So the, the overlap times, you're like, okay, who who is not likely to be a member or like what other organization or interest group are people less likely to be a member there if they're a member here? And it gets into like weird. Yeah. Well, it sounds <laughs> yeah. like there needs to be some bigger things about scheduling. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we try and squish everything into like yeah. four or five days, four and a half days. And that's like... There's so much going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is also, very chaotic. It is. And they have so many presentations, which is, is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't turn away a lot. It's not like um, some conferences in other fields where you have to really, uh, basically your, your abstract submittal is like an application. Like, will mm-hmm. you accept this? And some of it's to make sure, you know, there's a lot of inclusion and whatnot, but that's where we've run into ethical issues because yeah. those weren't screened well because yeah. there isn't a very robust screening process. They, they did, I think, an okay job. I can't remember if it was last year or this year, um, but they, they went through a whole, like, I ended up being on a committee for screening um, applic- or abstracts, and I can't remember if it was this year or last year, um, but it was a, a process, and there was a oh, lot of people sure. involved. Yeah, and it's all voluntary, so, right? Yes, the whole organization is voluntary, except for, like, the very few staff members that run the day-to-day mm-hmm. organization. So I think that that all makes a, a huge difference too that it's like it does a lot of I, this is I voluntary still, but <laughs> I still like there's a bit of me from like the scheduling perspective of if something is really important to the organization like you make the time and you make the space to make that the thing that people go to yeah I, or I, you know yeah you have this like discussion opportunity but maybe you have um, a feedback box at registration um, and, and I don't know whether they're going to do this, but at registration, one of the materials that you get, whether it's a digital registration or um, you want papers, is a reminder that this um, code of ethics is being reviewed and a request to submit feedback, um, either in person or online. Um, I think that would be awesome because they have like the vote for your favorite archaeology poster in the registration envelope that you get at the beginning. I feel like this would be, I think, hopefully a little higher on the priority list and be able to make it in that little envelope. Yeah. And and maybe we'll do they'll do that, you know, it, I don't know what the registration is is gonna look like. Um so yeah. <laughs> maybe. 
But b- before we get into kind of the the nitty gritty, <laughs> um, because I realize that we've just spent fast. <laughs> we've spent twelve minutes in the weeds <laughs> um, of what the essay is, is versus the RPA versus um, you know where where this ethics um, code of ethics came from. Um, but but let's talk about one of the reasons why this has gotten a little bit more scrutiny, and this this is something that we have. Uh, spoken about on the podcast before we'll we'll link to those episodes um both kind of directly we've done two episodes where we specifically addressed issues with sexual harassment and assault in the field including an issue that occurred at the SAAs mm-hmm. and I believe it was 2019 um but we also um there was an issue that I Emily or Kirsten one of you um briefly alluded to um, of conference presenters getting through. Yeah. Like with the um, kind of racist attitudes towards native Americans, indigenous peoples and research and whatnot. There's, there was that. I Was it? Yeah. I think that was like, ago? 2021 yeah it was an online presentation that got through i believe i could be wrong on that but i think that's or it was like uh maybe it was 2019 as well no the um the really racist uh lady um was not 2019 it was um i think the the conference was canceled in 2020 yes yeah and i I remember it being further away than a year ago, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with 2021, but it could yeah. have also been 2022. Um, but yeah, someone stood up and, and said a lot of very derogatory things um, about Native Americans and shouldn't have been allowed. And I, you know, again, similar to like the the issue in 2019 with the um, the guy who. Uh, you know, has a Title IX complaint and didn't get emeritus status because it turns out that he was sexually harassing and assaulting his students. Um, that wasn't an unknown. Like the the finding was was done at the place. The the really racist lady. Um, there's been conversations in bioarchaeology for years about how problematic she is. So again, like, of course, I'm blaming. There should be some people that you can flag to like get extra scrutiny or you know yeah and I mean some of it gets down to like having people who are knowledgeable about the field that's being talked about as far as the controversies of the people there as in addition to the knowledge on the topic itself is important and I think that's uh, something that they had started trying to do because of that kerfuffle is the nicest way I could say that. Um. <laughs> Very diplomatic of you, Kirsten. <laughs> but yeah, based on on these kind of happenings and also the, you know, the broader Me Too movement and mm-hmm. the recognition that there have been um, wrongs that uh, historically archaeologists have um, perpetuated. That's a good, against good way to put it. The communities that they are supposed to be um, Representing, representing mm-hmm. communicating with, 
responsible too. Um, and also you know, lack like, of inclusivity of uh, peoples of color, um, LGBTQ diversity. Yeah. 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 Just, um, lack of diversity in the field for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and 1996 is a long time ago. You know, yeah. that's it's 27 years. Um, that I'm old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to think about right, how old was I in 1996? Oh, wait. <laughs> I, was yeah. like, I was 11. Yeah. Let's not, let's not have that conversation. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is it is time um, mm-hmm. for them to, to be reviewed, to be more in line with where the field um, is right now and where the field is, is hoping to be, um, and also to kind of address some of these blunders that the SAA has made, um, you know, and I think yeah. it's, it's probably important for them, like as an organization to try more representative. Increase, yeah. Be yeah. more representative, try and increase transparency, you know, stand up for the, you know, for the people who need being stood up for, not just um, working to the benefit of those who are, are kind of already established and have mm-hmm. a voice and, yeah. And I I can say from um, my perspective and what I've seen going on in the along the the, the edges of the, the the inner goings on, uh, there's been a high turnover of the staff. Um, mm-hmm. There have been a, a lot of efforts made to improve transparency and communication with membership, not saying that it has finally become what it should be, but there has been some serious effort. And I want to at least recognize that, you know, steps taken forward is steps taken forward. It mm-hmm. may not be our final destination, but it's good to see them trying. That's yeah. so true. And that's where it's kind of like, as, as a member myself, trying to stay involved um, to some extent through the years has been for me, an effort in like, you know, something's not going to get better unless you try and make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, some things do need just walking away from, but I've, I've always felt like the SAA was too big of a boat to really sink. Mm-hmm. And if we wanted it to be what we think it should be, we need to make it that. So it's been, there's been a lot of growing pains, um, but I feel like there's some really good people on uh, staff and that are involved in the board um, today that are making some good efforts. And so I'm, I'm interested, I'm skeptically optimistic <laughs> about this situation is the best way I can put it. It's um, a great way to put it. Skeptically, it you know, optimistic. And I mean, we see a lot of good things on Twitter, I think, um, from different members talking about this stuff going on in terms of, yeah, the different organizations trying to, or um, different, you know, task groups trying to figure out the issues with sexual harassment and whatnot in the essay. So I, I think you're totally right, Kirsten. There is there is good stuff going on, but it's still hard considering what's happened in the past. Yeah. And, and they need to showcase not just saying the right thing, but doing the right thing. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and that is also tricky because nobody wants the moment where you have to do the right thing to come, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
it would all be better if that, you know, if we didn't have have to worry about sexual harassment (laughs) or racism or, but let's be honest, like we live in the world. Those are things that exist. It's probably a pipe dream. Yes. And not to mention the fact that these things have been not only around for a long time, but have become in our public world more prevalently exposed. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we'll just continue to see those things bubble up publicly more often. Mm -hmm. And the association needs to handle it and deal with it appropriately. And I think on a couple of occasions in the last five or 10 years, at least a couple of occasions, I know it's been more than that. um, You know, they've been kind of caught with their pants around their ankles and Mm -hmm. they're, you know, a little dumbstruck, but it's kind of like, (laughs) well, and then they haven't reacted well to that. They haven't done the um, culpa transparency Mm -hmm. responsibility. Exactly. You know, acknowledgement of harm. Anyways, that does bring us to the end of our um, first 20 minutes, and we haven't even started discussing what these <laughs> proposed new ethics draft is. Um, so I absolutely promise that that is what we're going to get to in the next segment. See you after the break. Sounds good. Hey, Chelsea and Kirsten, you know what would look really cool on a t-shirt or baby onesie? Ooh, our logo? Oh my gosh, yes! Man, if only we had something like that on Tee Public. Wait a minute, we do! Uh, hey, what? Yeah, yeah. Henry's excited! Yay! Yay. <laughs> That's right, yay! You can find us on teepublic.com and you can also find a link anywhere you can find us. Go get your swag now! We're adding new designs all the time. Hooray! Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we are discussing the um, draft revised uh, code of ethics that the SAA has put out in advance of their annual meeting in March of 2023. In the first segment, we talked a little bit about why. Um, the code of ethics needed to be updated. And in this segment, we are going to talk about um, what is is being updated um, or what the principles are. So there are nine um, principles in the new code, um, the revised SAA principles of archaeological ethics. Um, and Kirsten or Emily, do you want to start by talking about the first one? Sure. Um, so principle number one is stewardship. Um, and, uh, just as a quick thing, stewardship, as it says, involves the collaborative management of the archeological record for the benefit of all people. And so, um, stewardship, we want to be good stewards of the land. We want to be good stewards of the archeological record. We want to be good stewards, um, of the research and, and people we inter- interact with and, it's it's an excellent principle to have um it's definitely something i think we can all work on as a field um because it says archaeologists work for the long-term conservation protection of the archaeological record and here's where this is new and i think this is really good 
while respecting the rights and beliefs of indigenous and descendant peoples to the representation of their heritage as manifested in the archaeological record. Because for many, 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 many years, these are my words now, um, (laughs) there's been uh, a purposeful exclusion of um, indigenous uh, beliefs and um, rights to the past. And I, I think it's really good that trying to be more inclusive because of the colonial history of the um, of archaeology as a field and of archaeologists. And I mean, as we said in the previous segment, there have already been issues um, with um, racist presentations at the SAAs. And so I think this helps address some of that. There was also the um, incident where uh, there in California, they were subverting essentially NAGPRA and um, having not great treatment of human remains um, for uh, Native American peoples. And there was this whole um, kerfuffle with that because the SAA president um, of the time, Joe Watkins, signed the letter. And here we have a good example of where he apologized and was very open to the fact that it was a mistake and that that letter should never have been signed and i think here we see in stewardship also trying to address that mistake and then trying to be more inclusive what are your ladies what are your thoughts um so i'm super glad that they included that last sentence about um respecting the rights and beliefs of indigenous and descent peoples um i think it should have been higher up um in the stewardship um Maybe Paragraph. in the first sentence. Yeah, um, I, I think, and, you know, we've talked about this before on the, the show. We are archaeologists. We understand the value of the archaeological record. We understand its ability to, to represent culture and create community. And it is a valuable and important resource, but it's not more important than people. Um, so I, I would have liked to have seen that sentence you know, potentially be the first sentence. Um, the other thing that I will say, though, that I did really like about this um, cha- um, first principle, and it was a slight change. Previously, they had spoken a little bit about um, kind of materials and insight and, you know, to be excavated materials. Um, and there has, we've again spoken about it on the, the podcast before. Historically, there hasn't always been an awareness that the collections-based um, research, or so like working with existing collections, is not necessarily like as prestigious or as like sexy mm-hmm. as um, excavation. Finding something new. So I, I really, really liked that they called out specifically uh, research and education on existing collections primarily and sites. Mm-hmm almost as, as a secondary because there are so many existing collections that are sitting in warehouses not being looked at. Yeah. And it's such a lost opportunity. So um, I, I did like that. Yeah. And I, I agree on both counts. Those, this is, is so much cleaner and much more specific than the previous stewardship um, a principle. Um, the fact that I, I agree, Chelsea, that the, the work for the long-term conservation, um, right, of respecting rights and beliefs of indigenous and descendant peoples really needs to be um, first and foremost for a number of reasons. But a lot of it is, is that's 
who we work for. Like this is, this is what this is all for. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And because that is the ethical piece that needs to be, I feel like worked on the most, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. uh, that really needs to be, to be highlighted. Um, And this Mm -hmm. for some people, I know, you know, the age of TikTok, not everyone finishes a short paragraph. So um, (laughs) considered an afterthought for some, but (laughs) uh, even in a three sentence, four sentence, a paragraph, um, it's it's an important one and a a good addition. And at least it's it's number one. Yep. Yeah. It's in principle one. That's great. So I'll jump in on principle number two is responsibility. And this one is a new one. Um, They changed the name of principle number two. It reads, archaeological research is a privilege. Archaeologists have a responsibility to act in a transparent and honest manner as they work with colleagues, lawmakers, descendant populations, and interested publics to create and execute plans to study the past. Archaeologists must abide by all laws and regulations in addition to collaborating to the extent possible with groups affected by their work to achieve results in a mutually agreeable and beneficial manner. Archaeologists have a duty to maintain clear communication with all involved parties for the purpose of establishing both mutually beneficial relationships and strategies for studying the past with consideration for the present and future. So there's a lot of words. But far um, more inclusive than the previous one. So that's great. Yes. Mm. Far more inclusive. Um, one of the things that sticks out to me is um, abiding to by all laws and regulations, in addition to collaborating, collaborating to the extent possible with groups affected by their work to achieve results mm-hmm. in a mutually agreeable and beneficial man- manner. So mm-hmm. this, it is, it highlights, it extends to CRM and uh, academic work in the way that it's worded. So mm-hmm. laws and regulations obviously applies f- for most people. They're like, oh, CRM, right? But then it says, in addition to collaborating to the extent possible, because there are always limitations. Um, oh, yeah. But that's not like, you know, ending with collaborating. It's to the extent possible, like keep going until, you know, it's no longer possible or you find that limitation Uh, with groups affected by their work to achieve results in a mutually agreeable and beneficial manner. So the goal here is to be able to work in archaeology with descendant communities or other affected communities so that we're on a mutually understood footing. Mm-hmm. It, we, that doesn't mean that they have to 100% approve everything that we say. It means that we are understanding each other. This is something that I have found. What are your thoughts? What input do you have? Mm-hmm. Or, hey, I want to look at this. What do you think I we could really learn? What would you like to learn from this? Let's work together to come up with research questions. Or what are things that you would like us to not look at? What is too sacred? What should not be looked at? And trying to find a space where you can, you know, have, have a mutually uh, agreeable 
and beneficial research so that everyone comes out with something new. Um, so I know, and the only reason why I, I opened that with the, it's not something that they have to approve is I, I do know if a few archaeologists that that would be their first reaction. It's like, well, it's not actually, you know, real science or real research. If, if they're having to like clearance, whatever we're saying, it's like, mm -hmm. no, but what we do, we have to remember a uh, part of our responsibility is that these archaeology is a public act. Uh, sorry. A, um, a uh, political act. Mm -hmm. And that's, something to keep in mind. And I think this kind of hits on that um, note without quite saying it. So I, I agree. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I, I was actually going to say, I'm super happy that they talk about collaborating. I am super happy that they talk about, um, you know, achieving results in a, in a mutually agreeable and beneficial manner. Um, I'm very aware that in CRM, archaeology you have you have a, a client yeah or a you know a, so you're being paid by someone to do something and the person yeah. who's paying you has a goal that you're supposed to be assisting them in getting to um i, I actually took to the extent possible in an entirely different way that you did kirsten <laughs> which was kind of a um we should collaborate with them until it becomes too problematic and then you cannot because it becomes possible. So I, I saw it as a bit of like a get out of jail free card. And I guess it would be good to get some clarification from the SAA on like, or from this, this group about like which of those interpretations they meant. Well, I, I agree because so some of it is the, the limitations can definitely be funding. The limitations can mm -hmm. be the extent to which this project continues on. Um, I worked on a project a number of years ago that got canceled halfway through because we were finding too much. And so <laughs> they're like, okay, well, we're not going to continue this because it's going to end up costing more than it's worth. So we're just not going to develop here. Hopefully, We're going to say, yeah. So they stopped developing. They were, they canceled the development. Um, and that does happen occasionally, not very often, but um, when something like that happens, that is definitely a limit to um the ability to uh, for a mutually agreeable benefit like okay so you excavated all this now you're canceling it what's happening like where's the research that's coming out of this that that we're gaining from it's like it, it just it stops short right so um i mean obviously there's a report that finishes out but if you don't have Say, for example, we, you were originally planning on doing a bunch of sourcing on obsidian and some hydration stuff to, uh, you know, learn the, the um, uh, integrity of these sites, right? We're just going to start with that. Because then you're like, okay, from later research, you can see whether or not these sites are worth excavating or if, you know, what kind of integrity they have for um, the national register right but if you're gonna like stop and be like yeah we're not gonna do that part of the study we're just everything's being you know sent to curation and we're not gonna actually follow through with the, the remainder of that study because it's being canceled i feel like that stops short of 
really fulfilling that beneficial um, and mutually agreeable bit. But I mean, that's something that can be argued and is a case by case thing. So, you know, there's that, but yeah, there's also like private ownership stuff where someone doesn't necessarily have the funding to do a whole lot with it, but being able to talk to the, the tribes or to descendant communities and be like, Hey, this is the situation, you know, do you have any input on how this would work best for you? Like some uh, tribes I know prefer to just keep stuff in the ground and don't execute it. Don't execute it. So having those conversations is really where it comes down to. Yeah. And that's something that, um, you know, I had some questions with some of the like leader principles about of like, at what point if, you know, if the tribe says no, leave it in the ground, like, I'd like that to be a little bit more explicit, but then like listen to the tribe. But um, I am conscious that we are running short on time because we are talking more about each of these principles um, (laughs) than we had a lot of time for. So I'm just going to take us to principle number three, which is commercialization. It says the commercial sale or authorization of archaeological objects and other data for profit should not be practiced by archaeologists. Archaeology should engage with community to deter looting, marketing, and the selling of artifacts by framing the archaeological record as an invaluable resource for telling the story of the past and present. Archaeologists should educate others of the scientific, cultural, and spiritual values of the archaeological record and ensure that heritage is not used inappropriately for profit. Archaeologists should be respectful of other interests in archaeological remains and to the extent it's possible, assist with the repatriation of archaeological materials obtained illegally. there was nothing offensive to me or concerning about this. Uh, I will say I really liked the, to the extent possible, assist with the repatriation, which was like, I think like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, please don't steal these to return them. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <a limit. laughs> and grab in the museum, man. <laughs> right. Um, I think this is a super reasonable principle. Yeah. I think it's well written. Happy to move on to number four, unless either of you have anything to say. No, no. That's totally fine. I'm happy to cover number four. Um, it is a longer one, so I'll just paraphrase. I mean, it's public That's education great. and community engagement, um, that there are many publics that are interested and affected by archaeology. Um, there are so many different groups of outside of just archaeologists that are interested in, in what we do, how we do it, and that they have a vested interest and they should be part of all of that. And so here's um, one small part. Archaeologist one, explain what an archaeologist does in culturally appropriate ways. So this is now me. I think that's incredibly important that we are careful in how we present that information. So culturally yeah. appropriate ways, we're not just um, being like, look at all these human remains, la da 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 da, or something along those lines. All right. So yeah, number two, pretty, explain pretty the importance. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then explain the importance of understanding, preserving, protecting, and interpreting the past, the present, and future. That definitely goes back to the whole idea of stewardship, that we are good stewards of what we are researching, uncovering, collecting, uh, putting in museums, how we present it, etc. And number three, listen to and incorporate as possible the knowledge and concerns of impacted communities. So that is going back to consultation, collaborating um, with all of these Mm -hmm. communities that have a vested interest in archaeology. And I think we could even say, like, especially those who are descendant groups um, of this knowledge. 
And then number four, listen to and incorporate the tangible and intangible heritage desires of impacted communities. And so when we're looking at those intangible heritage, those can be a lot trickier because that can be like traditional knowledge that can Mm be um, instead of just like artifacts, that can be a mountain, that could be a traditional cultural property. And so that we're far more... um, inclusive in what that type of knowledge can be especially when associated with the work that we do ladies oh go ahead oh no no ladies your turn (laughs) i was just going to to touch base on the the intangible heritage piece um because some people have a hard time really wrapping their brain around it like one way to think of it um in other ways are important places or spaces where events took place so that could be um, a known um, place where people uh, arrived uh, by boat for a really huge uh, influx of folks from Cuba when you know the the Cuban uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that business happened you know mid century. Um, or an important border crossing space that, you know, people tend to not always make it through. These Mm -hmm. are important to the descendant communities, but may or may not actually have artifacts in place that relate directly or in obvious ways to that event. So uh, those are some examples I could think of as far as uh, the rest as you mentioned, the culturally appropriate ways. I'm so glad that's in there because that is one of my biggest beefs with public archaeology um, as I see it done often. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically my my two cents on there. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll agree with what both of you have said so far and also throw in the, the last line. Um, I think it's really important that they've recognized that the desires for public education and community engagement may be in conflict with scientific and or administrative objectives yeah. out there. Um, and saying it's a very, very good blind. Yes. Yeah. Um, be, because sometimes archaeologists do things that, um, you know, the CRM firm or the, you know, the building corporation that's paying you might not want you to do. And the building corporation asks you to do something that the community doesn't want you to do. Um and I think that, that highlighting that role as, of an archaeologist as the person who can can have those open conversations, um, I, I will highlight again that I think that the archaeologist's responsibility is to the descent community. Um, yeah. and, and that's like an awkward place because you're, a lot of firms will be like, well, I'm paying you, so your responsibility is to me. But that, that ethical, um, who, you know, who's, who's the client, who are you responsible to? Um, I think that, but I think that's really important. And it also just makes me think like, should all archaeologists have conflict resolution training? Uh, yes. yes. I, I, I think I'm, I'm agreeing with you there, but also like any, any situation where there's a CRM firm um, involved, there's usually also an agency archaeologist that is more, you know, representative of um, the, the resource in cases where, and I agree with you, wholeheartedly but i do know a lot of um the argument with crm is yes you are hired by this company or this you know for this project that is who you're ultimately um responsible to 
but that doesn't mean cutting corners and it means Mm -hmm. sure that they don't get in hot water, which means covering their ass and making sure that they do the correct and thorough um, consultation process and collaborating with other archaeologists such as agency or tribal archaeologists to be able to carry that out. So, And on yeah. a very quick note, because I know we need to wrap up the, the segment, um, and then on the flip side with just scientific, we're looking at academic um, research that I think this highlights too that um, with scientific uh, uh like if there's a conflict with that, just because we're archaeologists and we may want to do something like DNA analysis doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. That yes. Again, we have to work with the descendant communities. And if they are, are, say that like this is destructive and it goes against our belief systems or we just don't want you to, you know, take DNA samples from our ancestors, then we need to... Ha- work to a mutually agreeable solution. And then a lot of times that solution may just be like, well, guess we're not doing DNA analysis. <laughs> Kenwick, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does bring us to the end of this segment. We were hoping to get through more principles than just four. <laughs> we're going to have to switch five into the next one. Um, we do it. But we'll see you after the break. Bye. <laughs> Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. And we're back! Um, Today on the Women in Archaeology podcast, we are talking about the SAA's... um, revised draft, revised code of ethics. Um, And during the break, we decided that rather than try to run through five principles in 20 minutes when we didn't apparently manage four, um, we're just going to (laughs) record a four section um, for this episode. But without further ado, um, Kirsten, do you want to talk about the fifth principle? Yes, let's get into it. So principle number five is preservation of the archaeological record. This reads, the collections and documentation, digital and physical, generated through archaeological research are part of the archaeological record and as such should be treated in accord with the principles of stewardship. Archaeologists should be cognizant that many descendant and indigenous communities view the archaeological record as part of their heritage and should be included in the decisions regarding documentation and the pursuit of intellectual knowledge. Archaeologists have the responsibility to ensure that the record is archived, curated, and published according to prevailing professional standards. Professionally curated collections should be prioritized because they provide opportunities for research. Data and information should be available to descendant populations, colleagues, lawmakers, and regulators, and interested publics. So I really appreciated this principle number five. Uh, for a number of reasons. One is it reiterates some of the notes that we have already touched on, uh, including um, the existing uh, collections and prioritizing those for research. Stewardship. It's good they, that it's both digital and physical. It's yeah, both I loved that. And physical. Uh, they point back to all of that should be treated in accord with principles of stewardship. So stewardship is not just for the resource as an archaeological or historic 
place, but also the records created from that research Mm -hmm. is just as important and needs to be stewarded as well. And I think that is something that is a huge piece that's new, that has been a point of contention for a while. Um, I believe this replaces uh, a discussion on making sure that you actually publish. So that's in here. But the big thing is that digital physical records and that things are published with uh, to the prevailing um, professional standards because they're always in flux. And I really appreciated that they put that in there um, rather than trying to define it. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, data and information should be available to these populations and the interested publics I'm always like well how are you defining that and a lot of uh, for people who don't know archaeological data and records are uh, excluded from the Freedom of Information Act Mm -hmm. for the reasons of looting so interested publics are those uh, that are not looters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a protection measure. Um, and that I feel like is, is encoded in law, but it's not in here. And I think that's probably the only shortfall to this, but it's such a huge improvement as far as, um, discussion of an inclusion of, uh, the, the physical digital, uh, records and research as it exists. Totally agree. And yeah. it's nice that it t- it keeps tying back into, see, I like the theme that it keeps tying back into collaboration. Yes. Descendant groups and indigenous communities that, that keeps tying yeah. back that we got to, you know, uh, as a field, be collaborative, um, especially with how we look at the archaeological record and preserve the archaeological record. So Yeah. yeah. And that those decisions they should be included in the decisions exactly yeah and that the data should be available i know that's been a a big problem in the past with ethnographies Mm, and like um ethnographic works um and like ethnobotanies and that type of thing where all this work is done in collaboration with or like the knowledge is taken from but then there's no sharing of that information and it's like put behind like a paywall which is a big one. Um, yeah, but there is, it should be free for for the groups it's involved with, and then um, also that it shouldn't there shouldn't be like a, a thing where it's just like no, it's only my research, it's just mine, which yeah. I think is a problem in our field too. <laughs> so. Yeah, I I do think that the <laughs> um, the digital push as well as the kind of um, as you just said like focus on collaboration um it is good um I potentially would have liked to have seen a little bit more about like in talking to descent communities if they say no like you need to accept that no yeah wherever wherever possible um again like science doesn't trump people but there's a little bit more of that in principle number six which is on reporting um says archaeologists have a responsibility to share and publish results and data in a timely and so much as possible open access manner. Um, Mm -hmm. The information archaeologists gain from their investigations should recognize the intellectual input of indigenous communities and other interested parties uh, and be made available to as wide a range of the interested public as possible. 
um, and an interest in preserving and protecting sensitive information about the past and minimizing unintended consequences must be taken into account when publishing and um, distributing knowledge. I think this is all really important because like what is timely? Like how many times do you see something happen in archaeology and it doesn't get published for 50 years because somebody doesn't have the time or something is excavated and then just sits yeah. in you know, well, yeah. a lab. People love to excavate. Story. They don't like to write. Yeah. And the, the other issue that I see among CRM archaeologists um, across the board is how much work and time goes into curating. So I feel like collections are, there's more collections on shelves in CRM firms due to lack of funding and time than not wanting to, to do it. Um, so making sure that there's enough funding to get all that stuff taken care of, that you have the staff and the time to uh, be able yeah. to get all of it processed, all, all of that. Contracts for CRM shouldn't just be look and see if you find anything. There should be a, if you do find something, uh, the business development has decided yes. we're going to dig here. So now you're responsible. For <laughs> oh, and there, there often is, but it's usually not enough. Like, yeah, but, but know. there should be more of that. And I do think open access is really important. Yeah. Again, for those descent communities, but also, um, there's something sitting behind a paywall that is never going to be applied and not going to have an impact. Like what, what is the purpose of that? Yeah. Um, and a lot of CRM archaeologists don't have access to stuff behind a paywall. So if, our, if uh, you know, we are needing to be, you know, abreast of the improvements in research and such, uh, that needs to be changed somehow. Yeah. And, and a lot of publications can be redacted. Like, I think that might be something that we could work on as a field is because things... There are things that shouldn't be published that are parts of reports that can easily be redacted. Well, and that goes to that sense of um, an interest in preserving and protecting sensitive information about the past and minimizing yeah. unintended consequences. I think that's a really important sense of like, yeah, mm -hmm. there are some things sure. that like maybe shouldn't be published. Yeah. Um, so that is that. Emily, yeah. you want to talk about number seven? Sure. Would you like me to read the whole thing? Just checking. Um, you can, you, you do seem to keep getting the long ones. You can paraphrase if you want to. <laughs> oh, and I just, I was for time wise, but here, I'll yeah. just read it. All right. Archaeology. So this is principle number seven, training and resources. And this is one I don't think we think about a lot in terms of training. And I, in my particular um, agency where I work, training is actually huge as a federal agency um, and training the non-archaeologists and what, what to expect to find and then training students and whatnot. So I just, I think this is a really nice way to um, think about how we do our work and that training should be a bigger part of it. So archaeology is a multidisciplinary field, which requires a holistic approach to training, research, and professional conduct. Training must encompass ethical issues in archaeology and best practices, including exposure to multiple ways of knowing understanding of differential claims to the past and engagement with descendant communities and others impacted by archaeological work. Um, 
Evidence-based research requires expertise and applicable scientific methods and theory. An archaeologist's education should include research design and planning that prioritizes analysis of existing collections. There we go again with those existing collections. Um, justifies new fieldwork that maximizes the conservation of the resource mm-hmm. and ensures proper curation and dissemination of results. Learning is a lifelong endeavor, and archaeologists must continually update their skills to conduct research, supervise, and teach as a means of keeping up with the dynamic nature of our field. Training is expensive, sure is, and not always easily accessible, and complex power dynamics exist that may lead to abuse. Archaeologists working within their institutions, including universities, museums, private heritage management, CRM companies, and government agencies, have a responsibility to work towards securing financial resources for the purpose of maximizing training, ensuring safeguards, and broadening entry into archaeological professions for all. All right, so yes, that was a very long one. All right. It covers so much. It yeah. does. This is huge. Um, what I think, like I said, is fantastic is that it's really saying we need to have a broader understanding of how to do our field. So it's not just digging up stuff and it's not just walking around with a GPS and saying, yep, there's a site over there. Um, mm-hmm. We have to, it talks about how to work with people. And I do think that is a major skill that a lot of archaeologists do not have. <laughs> um, <laughs> We are a weird, introverted bunch of people. And I know it's a, a broad paintbrush, but I think it's, that paintbrush is pretty correct. Um, <laughs> so I do think that's something that is not really well taught is how to collaborate and how to um, work uh, with multiple types of communities um, yeah. and, not, and trying to just get outside of the exact things that we do in terms of site recording and, um, you know, working with collections. And so this is definitely much more, as it says, holistic and a much more holistic approach, which I think is a really good thing and definitely needed. Yeah. And I, I would add on the whole business that they touch on um, the potential for abuse in training and education um, settings and making sure that financial resources um are set aside for the purpose of ensuring safeguards and in broadening entry into archaeological professions. So it's these are things I feel like need more attention than just this, but the fact that it's mentioned in the training and resources at all is is a good start. Right. Yeah. I, I agreed. The big question though is how? Yes. Um, yeah. So the, the two notes that I had on here is like, again, glad to see the reference to the, the complex power dynamics and abuse, but how are we dealing with that? What is SAA doing? What are individuals doing? But the other thing that I had here is, is there was a lot of conversation or a lot of talk um, in the piece about what individual archaeologists could do. And yes, it is on individual archaeologists to all participate and to make sure that the field is safe. Um, but there's no references to what companies or institutions are required to do. Um, so, and, and I think too often companies and institutions are treated like people when it suits them and treated like entities when it suits them. And, yeah. and realizing that corporations also have a responsibility to their workforce to ensure that they are uh, trained and, and that there's an abuse going on and that they're safeguarding in place. Um, so, so I would have liked to have seen some references of like, yes, individuals need to do this. Yes. Individuals need to hold their, you know, workplaces accountable, but like workplaces also need to do it. It needs to become the norm. Yeah. 
Um, and that brings us to um, principle number, number eight, eight. Um, which does kind of talk about, again, a little bit about that safe educational and workplace environments. It states, archaeologists need to create a safe and supportive environment in all areas of practice. These environments should be free of all physical and non-physical discriminatory and violent practices, which include but are not limited to harassment, assault, and bullying. Historically marginalized groups in archaeology have disproportionately experienced these practices, resulting in a loss of diversity of people and ideas. Archaeologists should conduct themselves with respect for all people, and that includes the people we study as well as one another. Archaeologists in a position of power should be aware of existing power imbalances and be committed to ensuring respectful and inclusive work and learning environments. Um, kind of similar to the one above, at least my notes on it are, um, it's a good starting point, but it it's not enough. Again, it's talking very specifically about like archaeologists as, as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't include that, like what are the workplace requirements. I, I did really appreciate the, you know, archaeologists need to be committed to ensuring respectful and inclusive work and learning environments. Um, I think there are a lot of archaeologists who are aware of existing power imbalances and use them in a negative manner. Oh, yeah. Um, so so I think kind of the, the coupling of those two things together was really, really important. And again, there's that like question of of how I've literally written down good starting point, but so not <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. Backed up with an action. Yeah. And some of it is it's, I can see from where the essay stands is they are into governing bodies. So it's hard to create rules that can't be enforced, especially for entities that have probably more power than they do. Um, but saying something even just like you know it is ethical you know all organizations or institutions should x y and z like mm-hmm. instate a um their own ethics requirements or standards for staff they need to have a you know a call number for people to like a reporting hotline um, mm-hmm. They need to have like a- any and all of these things uh, could have been mentioned uh, that in referencing the way that institutions and organizations can create and support this because individual archaeologists, while part of these organizations, do not have the power to to enact these on an individual basis like they can respond to it and they can help create it in a team way but those institutions and organizations are really their own entity and the individual archaeologists come and go so Mm -hmm. having that ethical stance and talking specifically to those i think i think would be an improvement what do you guys think yeah, I, I agree. And, and I mean, you make a good point that like the SAA is a is a membership body for people, not for organizations. It's not, um, you know, this doesn't charter 
uh, institutions. Um, so I, I totally appreciate that there are some limits there. Um, but I, I think some language around, hey, this is this is what we would expect um, would probably be good. And then Kirsten, do you want to yeah. close us off with number nine? Principle Ooh. number nine, diversity and inclusion. Archaeologists have a collective responsibility to facilitate accessible, inclusive, and equitable opportunities and environments. Recognizing archaeologists assume various roles and operate within an array of bureaucratic and hierarchical structures, archaeologists should work to remove systematic barriers that prohibit equal opportunity for all. A commitment to inclusivity and diversity in academic, research, and professional opportunities through mentorship and other means will help foster a better archaeology. I think it's beautifully stated. Yeah, I feel like this is a similar problem to principle eight in that these are great things to aspire to, but you're still, you're talking about issues that really apply to organizations and structures that are bigger than individual archaeologists. For example, in, let's say, um, parks or places like Forest Service, uh, I do mostly see predominantly white male employees there are a lot of female employees as well but the diversity is particularly low (laughs) so the Mm -hmm. the one thing that i would say that i think is missing from this statement i mean again like it i'm glad it exists it's well written it's more than any one individual can can do you know systems need to be put in place what is the saa doing in terms of systems put in place um, but the, the one note that I had is that they don't define diversity. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. are you just talking about gender diversity? Are you talking about gender identity? Are you talking about sexuality? Are you talking about race? Are you talking about religion? Are you talking about socioeconomic background? Yeah. There are a lot of people who come from a lower socioeconomic background who really struggle to get into archaeology because it doesn't pay well. You have to front a lot of money. Sometimes you have to go to a field school, which is expensive. You know, we've talked about all of these issues on the, on the show, but I, yeah. I think recognizing that there are multiple different facets of diversity would be super important. Yeah. Um, I'm also just going to like very bluntly haul us to, do we think we can close up in five minutes and not actually record a fourth section and just have a really long third segment? <laughs> Let's just have a nice long segment. It'll be fine. All right. Cool. Don't worry. So <laughs> we've, we've covered all nine topics, even if I did cut us off a bit there at the end. No, um, what are What is your overarching takeaway? For me personally, especially with the last principle, the thing that I've, I think the wording is great. Yes, there's some things that could be included. I think the, the intent is fantastic. Yes, this needs to be updated. And I think this is a really good starting point. The part that I keep kind of going back to and that I find frustrating is then will the organization actually align itself to these principles? So things like, um, yeah, trying to remove systematic barriers, uh, such as, you know, there's, um, it, it, that's, it, it's very hard 
to go to the conference for majority of people. And a lot of mm-hmm. people go into debt trying to go to this, like as a student, they'll put it on a credit card to try to go to this conference because it is an mm-hmm. important networking experience. It is cost prohibitive to, I'd say, a good chunk of the people who need to go to this conference. So yeah. I think it's kind of ridiculous at times to, to say like, we're going to work to remove these barriers for people to go. Well, major barrier is the cost. Yeah. So can we make membership fees not as much? Can we make the conference not as expensive? And before people say, well, it takes a lot of money to run this thing. Well, a lot of people who help run it are volunteers. And a lot of it, like people are paying for their own hotels. So like, what what is it that that's the cost here? And then, then we've had all these incidences in the past where um, the director's are not aligning themselves to the old principles. So how can we have, like, how can we make sure that those who are actually being paid to organize and um, run the SAA are actually aligning themselves to these principles? So that's kind of the things I kept going back to is like, these are great. So what's next? (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I like uh, that you said that, um, because we've we've mentioned before, like SA as an organization, it's a membership. Vol- like people volunteer to be members, right? They're they're choosing to be. They don't have to be. Um, and that's what makes accountability so hard, you know, um, or enforcement or holding people's feet to the fire for um, not holding themselves to ethical standards. Um, you know, they they tried doing a. Uh, making sure that people actually manually agreed to adhere to the ethical standards while they were at the conference before allowing the ticket purchase. Um, They, you know, have, have tried various iterations of that, but I feel like the ability, even if we can't totally hold or very easily hold the entire membership to these standards in an accountable way, we should be able to hold the staff minimally and the uh, board to that fire. They should have to align themselves to that um, and, and they should be accountable to that if nothing else. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the staff and and board members. I would potentially also expand that to to kind of interest groups. Like if you're running an interest group, like oh yeah, oh you yeah, know, like any anyone who's kind of taken on a position of authority within the SAA. I, I mean, I think everyone should should meet these. The other thing, and um, I think it was actually one of you that that mentioned it, and I had originally missed it, is the the introduction to this talks. Um, that, you know, the principles compromise a set of ideal values and behaviors that all SAA members aspire to uphold. And, and I, I have a problem with the word aspire because I think everything that's in this document should be like the base level requirement. Like it's, it's the basement. <laughs> it is the minimum bar that you need to have, you have met. Like uh, we should all be aiming to be to not just meet these principles, but to be better than them. And and I think that that word aspire gives a little bit of like a, a get out of jail for you. Oh, I tried, but yeah. I didn't succeed. 
but I, I, I aspired to it. And this isn't saying that I need to do anything more than try. Like yeah. what try looks like for one person versus another is going to be different. So I, I, I think they're good. I like that it talks a lot about in the indigenous and descent communities. I am super glad that there's a diversity and inclusion piece in there. I'm glad yeah, that they mentioned kind of the, the power imbalances and the possibility for abuse. Um, you know, I think there's some really good things in there. I think there are some not so great things in here that, you know, please see the past hour discussion. Um, but I think that this shouldn't be something that we aspire to uphold. I think it should be something that we uphold. Yeah, I 100% agree. This is something that if we become members, and you do have to technically check that box that, yes, I agree to it, you know, aspire to or uphold these Um but this should this should be something that as a member we have to follow like these are our ethics this is what as an SAA member this is who i am this is this is what i am doing and grievance issues should be respected and while it is a voluntary join you know you you, you don't have to be an SAA member to practice archaeology but if you want to be an SAA member, you should have to adhere to these. And if you don't, mm-hmm. then you, sorry. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, there, there is like the, you know, the Watkins letter that we mentioned earlier to where it's like, oh man, I screwed up. You know, you own it, you, you learn from it, you move forward um, is one and thing. Helps. Exactly. And that helps build confidence in each other. It helps build um, transparency and trust and faith in the people who are leading the organization. Exactly. And so I feel like it is very important for the leaders of the organization. And as you mentioned, anyone in a position of authority or power um, within the organization should doubly take care to adhere to these principles on a daily basis and with their interaction with all of the groups and peoples mentioned. That's yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I do think that we're going to wrap up there. Listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us for this uh, longer than usual um, episode, but it was an important one to do. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you have thoughts or opinion, please uh, comment on... Um, this post on www.womeninarchaeology.com like and subscribe on whatever your podcast platform of choice is you can find us on twitter at womenarchies we are also now on mastodon uh, womenarchies at mastodon.social you can email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com if you want to support us there are two ways of doing so we do have a patreon where you get some early access um, as well as um, access to some goodies and stickers and the like and we are now on Tee Public. so if you want some women in archaeology swag you should head on over there there is a link on our twitter our mastodon and on our website um, and check out what we have available we're always adding new designs kirsten emily lovely to chat with you as always and until next time bye, bye.